That last verse always gets me just a little bit, makes me, makes me stop. Take my will, it is thine own. I don't know if any of you have troubles with control ever. I know that's something that, that I struggle with a bit and have to continually give that over to the Lord. Friends, would you pray with me? God, we come this morning knowing that you have a message for us. We come knowing that you have a purpose for each person gathered to hear your word this morning, whether here in this building connected on our live stream or someplace else listening to your word. God, we ask, we expect, we wait for you to speak. Open our hearts, open our hands to what you have to say. Amen. So this summer, all summer, I can't believe we're near the end of it. I try not to be sad about that too often, but I'm very sad that summer's coming to a close. But we've been talking about redemption. We've been seeing example after example, story after story of how God is our redeemer. And in more recent weeks, we've started thinking specifically about not just what we're being redeemed from, but what we're being redeemed for or to. Where is God taking us? And today's a little of both. This passage helps us remember the effects of our sinful ways, and we hear God's abundant call to repentance, which leads us to redemption. So we're in the book of Isaiah. We're going to be looking at chapter 55. Um, I'm going to give you a little bit of background leading up to that so we know how we got to where we are. So the first 39 chapters, Isaiah is a really long book. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah are focused on how Israel has turned away from God and how Assyria and Babylon will bring Israel's kingdom crashing down. But even in those chapters where we know that this bad thing has come about the hope for a new Jerusalem, and this this new place is where God's kingdom would be restored through this future messianic king. After the 39 chapters is where God's people are taken into captivity uh, by Babylon. And then after some time passes, chapter 40 starts up. And we hear this announcement in chapter 40. It's one that you often hear around Christmas time and Advent and such. Around chapter 40, we hear this announcement of hope that the time of captivity is over and that God's people can return to what they once knew. Well, something different, but what they think they once knew. And throughout then the next 15 chapters, starting at verse 40, going to the next 15, God is on a mission to redeem Israel and to reach the nations. Both of these pieces, so important. God's redeeming God's people and blessing the nations. What's still being worked out a little bit is how that's going to happen. We don't quite see the clear picture of how that's going to happen or which people are going to be involved in that. Which people will repent and join in God's work? So just uh, one more piece before we start here. Um, There's some debate about the authorship of this book. Like I said, it spans a huge section of history. Um, And if anyone's interested in um, in discussing what that looks like and who might those authors be and things like that, um, let me know. I'd love to chat with you. But for simplicity this morning, we'll just address the author as Isaiah, who's a prophet to speak truth and hope to God's people. 
So chapter 55. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you that have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread, and your labor for that which doesn't satisfy? Listen carefully to me, and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen so that you may live. I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. See, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. See, you will call nations that you do not know, and nations that do not know you will run to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake their way and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them return to the Lord who will have mercy on them and to our God who will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there until they've watered the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish that which I purpose and succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led back in peace. The mountains and the hills before you will burst into song, and the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it will be a memorial for the Lord, for an everlasting set off. This is the word of the Lord. So Isaiah is speaking to a people in exile who have been in exile for a long time. These people have lost hope that their lives will ever be what they once were. They've lost faith in the God they once served. So Isaiah tries to paint them this picture of extravagant, everlasting abundance that God offers them. While in captivity, these people have wondered how powerful their God really is. They've wondered if maybe... They should turn and worship the Babylonian gods, and some of them have decided to do that because how powerful can God be if we were taken into captivity? So Isaiah is trying to get their attention. He's calling them to see that God is not only the one true God, but that God also has a deep, unending love for this people. So this invitation in Isaiah 55 expresses the depth of God's love, and really for the whole world, right? It extends beyond God's people. Now, I think we often take for granted or maybe even actually forget that deep abiding love that God has for us, and then we ignore the impact that that love should be having on those around us. Do you ever get bogged down by what just feels like the unending struggles of life? especially recently. Sometimes it might even feel like captivity. We forget about the God that we once served. 
It might be the glimmer of sin or the the draw of immediate satisfaction or the pain of daily life and our memories fail us. We forget. Sometimes we can also fall into one of two camps with God's love. We either think so lowly of ourselves that we just can't imagine that God could actually fully, completely love us the way God says that he does. Or we're really arrogant. I wanted to find a nicer way to say that, but I know that's what I do sometimes is we get arrogant and self-dependent and God's love just doesn't even cross our minds. We don't even think about it because we rely on ourselves. Um, like I said, I've, I've lived in both of these camps. I've let shame and guilt overshadow any evidence of God's love in my life. And there are times that Matt and I have had to stop and have a conversation about, are we relying on God or are we relying on ourselves? It's easy to slip into one of those two places. But God continually comes back to us and asks us to recognize God's providence in our lives. Both of these camps reveal our brokenness. And it's that brokenness that brings us to a passage like this. So how Isaiah 55 starts with that come, come, come language, it's this bold list of invitations. And if you look at um, the form that each of these words, these, these invitations are in, in the original Hebrew, they're spoken like commands. Now, be careful not to confuse commands with demands, um, they're, they're different. This command is still an open invitation, but it's strong. It's, it's really trying to grab your attention. It's open to anyone who would accept it. I think um, Pastor Tom talked about this when we looked at the Ten Commandments a few weeks ago. When we hear God's commandments, wherever we encounter them in Scripture, it's a chance for us to see the whole picture that God has created. God doesn't command things in order to be punitive or um, vindictive or haughty, but to say, listen, I know the way that's best for your flourishing. I know the way to wholeness and peace. Come and live in that shalom. So here God is issuing this invitation and is longing for us to to respond. God says, come if you're thirsty. Come if you have no money. Come and eat. Come and drink. Come find your place here. God's people are being invited in as the honored guests of a banquet. I got thinking about this. Where, how can we understand that? What does it look like to be invited in um, as the honored guest of a banquet? I thought, I don't know that that's ever happened. But the one picture that I thought of was, um, it was our wedding and how that felt. The whole, you know, you get to the reception and everybody's sitting in at the tables and they tell you to wait outside so they can announce you. And you walk in and just that feeling of like, everybody's here for me now that can really feed into your ego. So it's good that we don't do that all the time. But just that's the feeling. That's the idea is that God is inviting you to be the honored guest at this banquet. I wonder if anybody isn't intrigued by that. Does anybody, even maybe those who don't love attention, you don't want everyone looking at you. But even if everyone's not looking at you, this invitation is still about you being an honored guest. This kind of invitation, like the love of God that we talked about before, it's one that we really have to sit with. It's it's different from what we're used to, and it's not just about hearing it. It's about experiencing it. So this is a kind of passage I want to encourage you to spend some time with this week, to really sit with it, listen to it on um, on your phone, whatever that is, so that you can ask God to help you experience that. We tend to operate in a scarcity mindset, right? We work really hard. 
hard to earn or to gather for ourselves and our families. We protect our wealth so viciously while others But God says, come all. No matter what, come all. What we read in the previous chapters of Isaiah shows us that God's people have been, they've been through it, right? They've been through every runger possible. They're exhausted by enemy and exile, by desolation and death. They've been given up to robbers because of their sin. And it calls God's people afflicted, storm-tossed, and not comforted. You might resonate with one of those feelings. Afflicted, storm-tossed, not comforted. But the passage tells us that ultimately God does not abandon this people. I want to tell you, I've sat and struggled with this a lot, especially this week, but before, before this passage too, have thought about this. Exile, sorry, exile looks like abandonment, doesn't it? And I'm sure it felt like it. That's why, they, that's why they felt the way they did. This comes up a lot of times when we are looking at Hebrew scriptures. But how can God make a covenant with Israel and then let them be taken into captivity? Some of you may have already worked through this, uh, but it's a question that I know still comes up for a lot of folks. How can, we, how can it be understood as mercy when God brings them out of captivity when God was supposed to protect them in the first place? So there's always more to learn about God, right? We always have these questions. I, don't, I believe God is not afraid of our questions. It's okay to, to dig in a little bit. Um, but I found a couple things that were helpful for me, and I hope they're helpful for you too. The first is that natural consequences are real, right? Israel should know very clearly where the boundaries are of sin and what it means to live outside of that sin because they have the direct connection with the God who said, here's the boundaries, right? So they should have an idea of what, that, of what that is. And when they choose to live outside those boundaries, there are destined to be consequences. Just like we talked about earlier with commands, God isn't just giving them a list of helpful life hacks saying, hey, I think this will work well for you. Uh, but God is saying, live this way and you will thrive. And shouldn't the creator of all things know best how human life will thrive? Honestly, this makes me think of how, um, how my two-year-old interacts with rules. Um, maybe she'll grow out of it. Maybe she won't. I don't know. But in our dining room, we have, um, our, our table has a long bench with it, and there's a window above the bench. The bench, or the window, is low enough that she can be broken. An heir from David's line will always sit on the throne. The trouble for God's people here is that they are still rejecting God. They are still not saying anything that looks like repentance. They still don't fully trust or believe. They're just not sure if God is the one to follow. But God is still on a mission. God is still on a mission to redeem the people and to bless the nations by reestablishing this kingdom. So the kingdom is one that will be established. We hear this language of the servant. We heard it in um, Psalm 89, and we heard it again through, well, all throughout Isaiah. This servant is described in all of these chapters and is the one who, um, the one through whom that God keeps the covenant that he made with David. So here's the, this language shift that helps us understand that now we're talking about this future Messiah. Because in previous chapters, God invited all the people 
who were coming out of exile to become this servant, to be the ones that were bringing the new kingdom. But they kept saying no. They kept rejecting. So God says, okay, we'll do it this way. Instead, this one yet to come is now going to sit on David's throne metaphorically instead of literally. So um, in Psalm 89, like we talked about before, David talks about this covenant, and this servant is described in... um, in language that we're really familiar with. We go back to all the time. This servant who brings justice to the nations, who opens blind eyes and frees prisoners, this servant is the light of the nations and who brings salvations to the ends of the earth. And this servant does it all through his own suffering and death. Isaiah 53 says he was, um, he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we are healed. The righteous one, my servant, will justify many and will bear their iniquities. This invitation that God has for us this morning, he's inviting us to this banquet, inviting you to be this honored guest at this banquet, this meal. And it turns out this is a banquet of salvation. It's a feast of victory. And we've been invited to or commanded to come anybody who's been burdened by life's failed expectations, who's been burdened by our own inadequacies or by our sin. God says, come. Even when we have nothing, no money, nothing to offer, God says, come. And even if we do, I love that this is, even if we do have money, even if you do have something to offer, it doesn't matter. It's, it's not welcome here. You can't bring anything because this is an invitation, a meal, a victory that has already been paid for. You have nothing to offer here of any value. This meal is freely given with love, deep, abiding, unending. Nothing can separate us kind of love. All the ways that we work for our own redemption, all the striving and the overfunctioning we do is worthless here at the table because it was never about our work, but always about the servant's work. These words about the work of the servant, in them we hear these future echoes of Jesus' words. So in John, uh, some in John 6, some in John 7, Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, let them come to me and drink. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, they will live forever. So now that this invitation to the feast has been extended, now that they know it's for them and we know it's for us, Through Isaiah, God gives a convincing argument of why they should believe this, because they are. They're still doubting. Coming out of exile, I just, honestly, I've heard people talk about that coming out of the last 18 months and feeling like, well, we're not done yet, but it feels like something's different. How do I show up in this reality? And God says, I want you to understand why I'm asking you to come forward. Um, So to show that God is in control of all these order of events. Isaiah uses this analogy. Um, You heard it back in verse 10 where he's talking about the rain and the snow coming from heaven, right? Um, They knew that, and and we know, the fertility of their land was absolutely dependent on water, right? Nothing grows without the water. In Mesopotamia, where they were exiles and they were farming, there was a system of canals, and it channeled water 
um, so that they could have their crops. But even so, even though that's where the water was coming from in front of their eyes, they still recognized that the water came, um, that was in these rivers, right, came from the snow and the rain that fell from the, um, from the mountains far in the north. But in Judah, they were even more conscious of their need for water because from the sky was the only place they were getting water. In Palestine, there wasn't a river system that they could connect to with large-scale irrigation. So the water needed to make the land fruitful had to come directly from the heavens, right? When the rainfall wasn't enough, they knew they'd have famine. And when the rain did come, the land was guaranteed to be bountiful, to have a harvest where people were fed and where there was enough seed for next year's planting. So this is ingrained in them. They knew that God gave the rain. They knew that God was responsible for the land's bounty. And so even when they're questioning the order of historical events and is it really God bringing us out of captivity and was it really God that let us go into captivity, Isaiah is reminding them here, you know that God is responsible for the land being plentiful, for all of these things to be happening. The prophet reminds them and reminds us that what God wills, God accomplishes. And that they could fully depend on that. They could just rest in that. And then to further spur them on towards believing this incredible message, Isaiah tells them that all of creation is ready to celebrate with them. That the desert is going to transform into this incredible lush garden that will be a memorial to the Lord. The purpose of this line of imagery is to help them remember what God has done in the face of their enemies. And for us, it reminds us that God uses all of creation as a participant in transformation that will ultimately lead us to this new heaven and the new earth. For the prophet, the transformed desert, its springs and its rivers, its trees and the mountains and the hills, they're not just blind and mute witnesses. They get to be participants. They get to join in the celebrating and the restoration. This always makes me think of just what does that mean for us, right? How do we, how do we engage with that? But I hear so many people say, do you know where I hear God best? Do you know where I, I really feel connected to God's presence? And it's outside. It's, it's people talking about being hiking in the woods or just sitting and watching a, a sunset or being, um, being out on the ocean or something like that. All of creation is working towards this direction. And that's what Isaiah wants people to see here. And all of this reflects the glory of God. So can you find yourself in this invitation today? Do you sense where God is trying to lead you? Perhaps it's someplace new that you've never imagined, or maybe it's to a restored version of something that you once knew. Chances are it's still going to be different than where you are now. The message, for, uh, the message that God has for us today is that we just aren't meant to stay here any longer. Exile is not the design that God has for our lives. So what do you need to let go of to start seeing the transformation that God's calling you to? There's brokenness, there's disconnection, there's hurt and pain in all of our lives, and God is calling us out of it. Some of you I know are actively engaged in transformation right now, and you're working incredibly hard. And I want to encourage you to um, remind you to reach out for support when things get difficult. This journey is not meant to be one that's taken alone. But God has extended these invitations in order to change us. And when we're changed, we show up differently with those around us. We become more patient and compassionate. We start seeing people through God's eyes instead of our own. God doesn't change us just for us, but God changes us.
to bless the world. So I want to invite you this week to hear God's words of redemption so that you may be let out in joy and go forth in peace. Amen.